In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. This is Cork Today. Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. Cork's And a very good Monday morning to you as we welcome you along. Bernie in again for John Paul on his long weekend off. Hope he's having a nice break. John Paul, so Bernie's taking your calls at 0818-103-103. Anything you want to share with us, texts and WhatsApps are already flooding into us. Love to see them. 0862-103-103. And I'm going to stay on weather for a moment because I was reading a piece by Ralph Regal in the Irish Independent uh, today telling us that we face the threat of an Atlantic storm midweek this week. Now it could bring torrential rainfall but the big danger is it could bring damaging winds. Potential gusts of up to 160 kilometres per hour. Meteorologists are carefully monitoring the weather front because it is currently out in the mid-Atlantic. According to Met Aram, Ireland faces a week of very unsettled weather but there is the potential for these very, very stormy conditions on Wednesday. Now the fact that this weather front is currently in the mid-Atlantic as they're monitoring it carefully uh, hoping I suppose that it might weaken as it moves uh, toward, towards us. So the precise strength and the track of the weather front is still unclear so they're still monitoring it but it's expected to sweep over parts of Ireland. Now it'll be starting late tomorrow night and then it'll be there right throughout Wednesday and us here in Cork, our neighbours in Kerry, Limerick and Clare, we can uh, we will experience um, the, the brunt of it with some uh, very powerful wind gusts particularly along the exposed coastal area so it looks like from tomorrow night into Wednesday we'll be very much battening down the hatches and we'll keep you posted on the update as the meteorologists track that particular weather front. And looking at the papers today very much covering the highs and lows I suppose of uh, the weekend on a sporting front. Let's start with that. What a superb uh, weekend and uh, great to see lovely photographs on a lot of the front page of all of the papers today of uh, Leona Maguire. She was with Team Europe celebrating after winning her match on the 15th hole. It was day three yesterday of the Solihan Cup and it was held in uh, Spain. And of course, as we know, Europe retained the cup after the contest ended in a draw with America. But gorgeous photographs of Leona Maguire with the tricolour tied around her neck. Uh, 
she really did uh, Ireland uh, proud and then Johnny Sexton I think very much summing up the mood of uh, the nation after the match yesterday uh, he said of the Irish fans who had taken over the Stade de France he said they give us the best days of our lives and I heard Johnny Sexton commenting on the fact that it was reported that 30,000 Irish had travelled but looking he reckoned there was at least double if not more Irish in Stade de France and certainly watching it from from a TV point of view whenever the cameras panned to the audience there was a huge amount of the Irish green on uh, display and of course the Irish team we know that they are ranked at number one and Saturday saw 16 wins in a row. Do we dare to dream? And uh, Stephen Ferris was reporting for RTE, uh, describing it, uh, saying it's absolutely crazy, the scenes he was witnessing on Saturday night. But he was making the point as a rugby pundit, if somebody had said to him 10 years ago, do you think Irish rugby would get to where they currently are now? He says 10 years ago, if you'd been asked that question, Question, he would have said no uh, way. And of course, what a match it was against uh, South Africa. Very, very heavy weight opponents, literally. Uh, they who contested every set piece, they contested every breakdown with a huge, huge uh, ferocity. If you were watching it, you couldn't help but wince some of the times with the ferocity of the uh, attacks. But at Ireland battled hard. Now, they weren't perfect. I think the Irish team themselves uh, would admit that. And they did have a little bit of help with some misfiring goal goal kicks. But listen, a win is uh, a win. But what's clear, I was watching the post-match uh, commentary from both Johnny Sexton and Andy Farrell. And I thought it was lovely. You know, I mean, you could very much see that this is a team that is really, really very much driven, but it's not just driven on its own uh, steam. steam. They've very much complimented and, you know, spoke about the entire nation being behind this team and what it means to the players, not just the ones that travel, but to know what's going on at home uh, as well. And I suppose... When you watch the match on Saturday, when you sit back and you think about it, to me, what's probably really amazing was that Saturday night's match was just a pool game. I mean, at times it almost felt like it was a World Cup final. And if it had been a World Cup, Cup final, what a win it would have been. As I say, all we do now is we can still dare to dream. 0818 Your thoughts if you were watching that incredible match on uh, Saturday night. And while, as I say, the mood of the nation was completely lifted by what was going on in the Stade de France and what was happening on a golfing point of view, in uh, Spain and while all those amazing scenes were being played out we sadly had just another weekend of carnage on our roads in total four separate road accidents a child and three men all lost their lives and that was just in a space of 24 hours over the weekend now a man we heard yesterday has been arrested in relation to the fatal hit and run incident in which a nine year old boy was killed in Bundoran in County Donegal that was on Saturday day at night and then there was a competitor in the Clare Stages Rally who died uh, yesterday afternoon and then there was two other young men uh, killed separate collisions one was um, in Kerry and one was in Dublin but the little nine year old boy 
who was killed in Bundor and he was named locally as Ronan Wilson and there's gorgeous photographs of Ronan Wilson um, in his little GAA colours making the papers today. He was staying in Bundorn with his family. They were on a little, it was just a weekend away. They live in the neighbouring county of uh, County Tyrone. Now seems little Ronan was killed instantly when he was struck by a car. It happened at 20 past nine on Saturday night at the Atlantic Way in the seaside town. As they say, we now know it was a hit and run, but a man has subsequently been arrested. His local GAA team local GA club in Tyrone Kildress at Kildress Wolftones they cancelled all of their games yesterday as a mark of respect and seemingly little Ronan played uh, under 10s on the football team and he's an older brother and sister who also uh, play for the club such such heartbreak for that uh, family and then the rally co-driver who died during a motor racing event in County Clare yesterday. He's also been named. He's uh, Damien Fleming, a 37-year-old. He is a native of uh, Kilcommon in County Kerry. Uh, he died in what was described as a serious two-car collision. It was during the fourth stage of the Clare Stages rally and that was at about half past one on Saturday. The driver of the car in which he was competing was uninjured. The driver of the second car involved, he he was transferred to Limerick University uh, Hospital, but he's described as a stable con- in a stable condition, and he thankfully doesn't have life-threatening uh, injuries. And uh, the event was taking place on public roads, but those the public roads had been closed to uh, traffic. And then, separate to those two very tragic deaths, a young motorcyclist was killed and a pedestrian injured. That was a crash that happened in Tala in the early hours of yesterday morning. The motorcyclist in his twenties died after his bike struck a pedestrian at a roundabout it was at about quarter to three in the morning. Now, he was pronounced dead at the scene. The pedestrian was rushed to Tata Hospital and his injuries, thankfully, are not described as life-threatening. And then the fourth fatality was a young man who was fatally injured in Kerry. Now, it seems he was struck by a taxi yesterday morning. He's been named locally as Daniel Houlihan from Lizelton. 25-year-old, he was understood to have been walking home to Lizelton when the tragedy happened shortly before 2 a.m. Um, in the morning, the taxi driver, a man in his 40s, wasn't injured, but obviously was very much treated for shock at the scene. So we extend our sympathies to all of those uh, families and the ripple effect that we know when you have a tragedy uh, like that, it really is so, so sad. And that's why they say looking at the papers today from the highs of the sporting weekend to the lows of what can happen with road uh, carnage. 0818103103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text to WhatsApp to 0862. 103, 103. When we were congratulating the major sporting events that happened over the weekend, Willie and his school was on today. There was another major sporting event we need to give a shout out to and it's the Liskould boys. They won their first East Cork A-grade football on Saturday in Glenville and it is their first time to win. So congratulations to the Liz Gould uh, boys. And then a listener was on uh, wondering, you know, we're also nervous now about scams and we're also careful about clicking on any links, particularly something that's sent to us by email or sent to us by a text message. And listener said, I'm wondering, is this a scam or not? I got a text this morning asking me, how was your breast check exam? We would like your feedback with the link. I never received such a text message from any other 
breast check appointment I ever went to. I'm just curious, as I did have uh, my breast check exam a few weeks ago, could you find out please is it a scam or not? I went on to the breast check uh, website and they do have a thing called the breast check survey and they said after your breast screening appointment you may be invited to take part in a survey and it is sent out by uh, text uh, message. Uh, so yes, they, they do. Now they don't send it to everyone, they just you know randomly select a group of uh, people. So yes, I would I would say that it is uh, totally above board. It's a text message from Breast Check and, and obviously they do it just to, uh, you know, to uh, to look at how people got on at the appointment and they do it for ways of improving as well. But we'll give it as a shout out. Did anybody else receive such a text message? This will be after you've had your mammogram, after you've gone to Breast Check. Did you in the weeks afterwards, did they ask you for your feedback? 0818 103 103. And Michael, Talking about what a hectic weekend for sport for Ireland, both male and female, both sides were just outstanding. Many, many congratulations to everyone concerned. But Michael wants to, is, is, wants to highlight, I suppose looking for other people's opinions on the Late Late Show on Friday night and in particular the final interview, which was the former head of the HSE, Tony Houlihan, writing about his new book. Michael, not that impressed. He says, oh, dearie, dearie me, as the late Gay Byrne used to say. Tony Houlihan's so-called book is all about me and me only. Forgetting about all of the poor women who suffered death at the hands of the cervical smear test cancer scandal. R.I.P. Vicky Phelan and others. If this book tells us anything, it was that he thought he was God. That's according to Michael. Now, I... Uh, I'm I'm at pains to criticise the book, Michael, because I haven't I haven't read it yet. Uh, I did get the feel from the start of the interview that the book is more a love story. It's about his wife, Emer. May she rest in peace and everything that Emer went through. And, you know, you couldn't help but have sympathy for the man when he was going through the pandemic and led this country through the pandemic. And at the same time, many of us were aware, unaware that his wife was dying of cancer. We only found out when he took a period of time off. It was only then it came out that his wife was terminally ill, but we hadn't been aware of that, certainly for the first 18 months of the uh, pandemic. On the cervical check, uh, the one thing I was disappointed with that particular interview was Patrick Keelty did mention Tony Houlihan's role in the survival check scandal and controversy and Tony Houlihan just breezed over it and moved on and I felt that Patrick Keelty, maybe he didn't know enough about it. I don't know. But I think he should have gone back and pushed him. And because a lot of people would now like to hear Tony Houlihan's reflection on his role in the cervical uh, smear uh, crisis um, and scandal, uh, for sure. Uh, But as I say, I'm slow to criticise the book because I I haven't read it uh, yet. And I don't know if it's all about me, me, me. Uh, He he led us to believe that the story is very much a love story. 0818 103 103. Thank you for your text. You can text or WhatsApp 20862 103 103. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Today on C103. Consumers Association of Ireland is calling on the energy regulator to make stronger interventions in the market to help out hard pressed householders and has actually described the regulator as not fit for purpose. Michael Kilcoyne is chair of the Consumer Association and Michael joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Michael. 
morning to you, Patricia. Now, we have seen energy companies announce cuts, but we are still paying very, very high electricity prices. I mean, isn't that the reality? Yeah, that's what I have been saying. We're paying energy prices that are among the highest in Europe. Um, and we have a regulator. Um, part of his responsibility or her responsibility is um, energy prices. Um, and I'm saying, well, well, what's happening? What's the story here? Why are prices rising? Why isn't there something being done about it? Why can these companies charge uh, what they like for what's basically an essential service? And why are these companies making them huge profits? And why is the consumer, um, why do they have to make a choice whether to have their supper or their sandwich or keep the house warm? Because that's the way it is. That's, uh, yeah, that is the, re- the reality. And I know the energy regulator last uh, week didn't come out with very good news, said we will not see energy prices return to previous low levels back 2020, 2021. We won't see that anytime soon. But that raises for me, or it begs the question for me of why do we need a regulator? Um, um, you recall going way back that uh, the only supplier of uh, electrical um, was the ESB. Yeah. And um, when the ESB were, um, what happened was the ESB were, um, they decided, the people in Europe, that the ESB had a monopoly and so they uh, encouraged other operators into the marketplace. They allowed the price of fuel uh, and energy to rise so that these other operators would come in. They came in there was competition, which on the face of it does not appear to be working. And that's what we were promised with competition, wasn't it? You, you promised loads of things. Yeah. They don't happen. They don't now, happen. the energy companies themselves, they keep citing hedging practices and these long-term contracts. Is that starting to wear a bit thin? But, but, but that's a matter for them, what they want to do with their money. Why should the consumer have to pay because of the way they carry on? But they, if you notice, they, will, they carry on in a manner in which um, it generates profits for them. It doesn't generate losses for them, it generates profits for them. Does the CRU have powers to look at the energy company's books to well, see if, if, exactly if, if where the profits are? If they can't, they, sh- they should have. If they can't, they should have. Um, because um, there's no point in having an energy regulator uh, and they're not able to do their job. It, it's not satisfactory that um, you set up an energy regulator and the energy regulator has no power and he asked these guys that he's supposed to be regulating about what's happening. And, and, and uh, he doesn't even inspect uh, their books or their prices that they're charging in terms of how they arrive at them prices and so on. Um, they don't have any power. So why have an, an energy regulator when... And he has no power to go to go after these guys. Oh, ultimately, does it land back on the desk of the Energy Minister, Eamon Ryan? Should he be putting more pressure on the CRU? Well, it's not just Eamon Ryan. Uh, there are three parties in government. Um, uh, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and, and, and the Minister for, um, for, for Transport and the Minister for um, Energy. And... Uh, all of these people were elected by the public and the public uh, will have the opportunity to say whether the satisfactory uh, service being given for, for, for what they are being paid to do. So 
not just Eamon Ryan, every other Eamon Ryan of the 160 that are there as well. Yeah, and we know that the you know the budget negotiations are going on, particularly this week. I mean, they're they're really getting down to the brass tacks of it. And you know, one of the things that's been speculated is uh, we're going to all get energy credits, which I think every household will welcome. But ultimately, those energy credits that just boosts the profit of the energy companies. That's exactly what's happening, uh, and it's not given any uh, assurance to the consumer, not given any st- um, stability to the consumer. Um, and all the time the prices is going up. It's all right to give you a couple of hundred euro every so often off your electricity bill. But the fact is, when that's gone, the electricity bill is still at the same rate as it was. Yeah. Why should, when, in, when uh, the prices of, uh, of, of uh, oil is, uh, uh, and gas and so on, when they're uh, moving on the market, why isn't it being reflected in the people that supply us with uh, with uh, with um with power. And when I'm at it, I just want to say to you that some of these prices are totally within the control of government. For example, you won't get um, diesel for much less than 185, uh, one, uh, one litre or 85 cents at the moment. Or yeah, it's like really shooting up again. This was put on, this was put on by government. This was a decision taken by government um, to increase the excise duty. This mm-hmm. was a decision. This wasn't taken because some Arab fired a shot at another one out in the Middle East. That wasn't what happened. I, our government decided to reimpose this, and people need to be very clear on what's happening. Yeah, and we know there's another one expected, but it's looking Correct. like but it's looking like they'll, they, they, in the next budget, they'll announce that they're not going to put it back on. They'll, de, they'll just defer it. Uh, yeah, but they and shouldn't have put the one... It all yeah, and it, yeah. It'll come in, in a, a few months afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I also... Um, 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 but can savings be made by shopping around on electricity, well, Michael? That's a good question. The regulator should be really delving into this. See are these guys making excessive profits, uh, and and say it and call them out for what they are. But if government doesn't give the regulator the power to do it, they can't do it. It's okay mm-hmm. for ministers to say this should happen, that should happen, the other thing should happen. It's not happening. And I saw you quoted in uh, the papers this morning on something else that will be of concern to a huge number of people. And this is, to, and this is something I'm sure I spoke to you about uh, a number of years ago. And this is to do with the banks who sold um, hundreds of their ATM machines to private companies. Um, and we were told at the time there would be no additional charges for taking money out now that it was operated by a private company. But we were told that would be for a period of three years. And that three years is due up, up soon. So, yeah. is, is it up now? It so, will be up soon. Yeah, so are we going to now start getting getting charged every time we try to take cash out of an ATM machine? Well, private companies don't buy things to make losses. They don't buy things so that they can uh, subsidise the consumer. Private companies, uh, Patricia, they buy uh, services and so on so that they in turn can make profits on it when they sell it to the consumer. So you can be certain there will be a charge. So um, the government have been forcing people, um, maybe forcing is too strong a word, but the government has been encouraging people to pay their social welfare, pay their wages. Everything is automated. If you want to take out your money now, it looks as if you're going to have to pay for it. Yeah, and it's not a case that you can you can pop into the bank on the main street. A, you there, might there have a bank, nobody and, in the bank and there'll be the nobody in there to give you the out money. Get, yeah. Correct. 
correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You take it's, it out of your machine, you'll be lucky if the machine is working because the breakdown rates of the machine, something very, very high because um, I have gone many times to pass machines and it just stays out of order. Sorry, come back tomorrow. And we've no idea on how much they'll charge. We don't. They mm-hmm. own the machines unless there's regulation put in place, uh, putting a max on them. But all of this is money coming from the hard-pressed consumer. The consumer, the price of their fuel has gone up, their electricity has gone up, the cost of living has gone up. The minister will be saying in a few weeks' time how great him and his colleagues in government are. Yeah, because I, I was in Spain recently and um, I took some money out of an, an ATM machine. Now, luckily, I only did it once. And um, it was only when I got back and I was checking my bank statement. I think it was, it was two... a little fee. A little fee. It was €2.50. Mm-hmm. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And I was thinking, isn't it great that, you know, we, you know, we don't get charged our ATM machines, but, but now it's looking like that is something that could be it's on the cards. It's on its way to you. Yeah. And Marion uh, wonders, while you've got Michael on the line, would you please ask him, when does, he, when does he think we'll start to see food prices coming down? Her weekly shopping bill just seems to be getting higher every, every week. She's a family uh, with three young kids and she says she's really, really struggling. Look, I agree with her 100%. I'm not in a position to do anything about it. I'm not in government. There's a minister with responsibility. I heard him recently uh, talk that he wasn't going to direct these uh, huge supermarkets that have huge monopolies uh, in relation to the prices they should be charging. He just talks to them. Should we talk? Nothing happens when we talk. He's the guy with the power. He has the legislation there, and he's not prepared to use it. Yeah, and then everyone, like every, I can see people now just, just talking about prices of uh, things. Uh, one listener says, Patricia, I recently went into a shop for a breakfast roll. €7.20 they wanted for a medium breakfast roll. Two sausages, two puddings, a hash brown and a small spoon of beans. It wasn't even a large roll. Now, I won't name the premises, but I'm genuinely interested in what your other listeners uh, are paying. I refused to pay seven twenty for a medium-sized breakfast roll and I left it behind. The deli staff said to me... The deli staff says, we're the cheapest around, but this sister says, my local shop charges €5. Euro. I work all over the country. It seems the county of Cork is most expensive. €7.20 does sound very expensive, but she's right to do that. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're not she's happy right with the price... That. Leave it there to them. Leave yeah. it there to them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and I can see a lot of people talking about gas and electricity. and uh, But, but they, need to be, they need to be talking to their local TD because their local TD is the person that they have for, voted for the, that's the person they have chosen to represent them uh, and uh, they should be deciding whether they're doing a good job or a bad job for them. And they should let them know no point in, in saying, Johnny, you're doing a mighty job up there when they don't have the price of the, of the bread roll. Yeah, morning, uh, Patricia Michael. Why should the regulator worry about electricity and gas and fuel prices? Sure, they're on great wages. It's only change in their small pockets. The ordinary Joe soap for us is yeah, like yeah, a week's, but, it's like a week's the wages. The regulator has to go by government policy. He can only Im- implement and uh, the po- and the powers that are given to him, <laughs> and the powers are not being given. And look at the price of rent. Yeah. Yeah, and I know um, it's out today. The the price of houses has uh, gone up again uh, for first time buyers. We're pushing more and more first time buyers out of the market. They end up being forced then to rent, and they end up paying exorbitant rent. Okay, listen. And on every penny that you pay to, the, to uh, every penny that you pay to buy your house uh, or to build your house, there's vetting. 
more tax for the government. But you look at the amount that's coming in in VAT to the exchequer. They have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to spend it. And yet, our electricity prices are among the highest in Europe. Okay, Michael, we leave it there. We'll talk again in the meantime. Thank you for that and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, Michael Kilcoyne, who is chair of the Consumer Association. Just finishing on that uh, WhatsApp that came in uh, about the regulator and I suppose people in government, they're on huge uh, wages. They just don't care. I'd love one of them to live in my shoes for a month like the show Rich Go Skint. Thanking you, Patricia. Have a good day and have a good day to you uh, too. Uh, Kevin says, Patricia, we're all talking about fuel credits and the 200 euro fuel credits that we may get from the government in the next uh, uh, budget. But I'm hearing nobody talking about what's going to happen in the next few months. Fuel prices are rocketing at the moment. We can already see them going up at the petrol pumps. That means the ESB prices and all of the other electricity providers are going to start putting their prices up again in the future. That is Kevin's prediction. Thank you for your text to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. Now, a national strategy and promised legislation needs to be delivered in order to remove the blight of dangerous shipwrecks from the Cork coastline. The call follows the publication of a health and safety report on the wreck of the MV Alta uh, just outside of Ballycotton and one of those leading the charges, Fine Gael Senator uh, Tim Lombard, uh, who joins me. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. Uh, and I suppose first you start by reminding listeners about the MV Alta and how and when it ended up on our shoreline. Yeah, look, this ran aground in February um, 2020. It literally was like, drifting at sea for many, many months. I think it travelled something like 14,000 kilometres and eventually ended up on the actual coast of Ireland down by Valley Cotton. It was abandoned and it's a, a sense of how this actually happens worldwide, that if a ship becomes you know, too much of a financial burden for whatever industry owns it, they would abandon the ship, leave it float, and leave it land where it lands. And look, this is a very extreme case. Um, it landed in Belly Cotton, Cork and the Council. They've worked the guard in taking whatever poisonous materials were on the actual ship off. But the knock-on implication is that three years later, at least nearly four now, it has broken into two, and it's a wreck literally on the actual East Cork coastline. And there seems to be no strategy that I can see of To do anything about it. Now, talk to me about the health and safety report. What did that report say about the current condition? Yeah, look, this report was done by London-based experts regarding the actual wreck itself. And look, they're saying that there's high risk here regarding people actually going on it. And it actually went on to say there was fires on the actual site itself. And people were accessing the actual site and accessing both sides of the actual boat that's been... Um, literally broke, broken in two because of the weather in the last few years. And there's a significant risk of injury in, in a number of ways uh, because of the actual dangerous site itself. So it really is a significant risk now at this stage that we have a boat that is unfortunately becoming nearly a party zone in some times of the year. Shocking. Going, Shocking. And, and I mean, the, the, the report went far, you know, went so far as to say, and I quote, it could not rule out a fatality as yeah. being possible as a result of people trying to access um, the, the shipwreck. I mean, do the people boarding the vessel, do they not realise how dangerous it is? 
I actually don't think there is. I think they've taken the view that this is a wonderful opportunity to jump on a, an old boat. Far from that, it's a really, really dangerous moving structure that has the potential to actually cause death. And it's very rare that a report from a health and safety organisation goes as heavy and as hard as it did. But they actually did need to compliment them for that because they've really outlined the issues here. And like, the issues are that this boat can be actually accessed 24-7 by anyone. It is literally, as I said, could cause fatal death. And there seems to be, as far as I can see, between local and national government, no national strategy in dealing with this issue. Who, like, who commissioned the health and safety report, by the way? My understanding is that it was done by um, the local authority, Department oh, of Transportation. Um, so they're working together regarding the report, but with the deepest respect, reports, reports. I know, and it'll, it'll end up on a shelf being dusted. Is there any signage, Tim, alerting people to the dangers? Not that I'm aware of, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't know the area that well. I wasn't down there in months, so I, I really don't know. I'm not, I, I actually don't know what's there at the moment. But like what I do know, talking to people like my wife's in that part of the world, like they are disgusted that this boat has been left, you know, to rot. Going to rot in two or three different places. It became a bit of a tourist attraction in a very, very sad way during the summer. So, like, it became a really, really bizarre scenario that we had youths calling there just to look at the boat, actually the boat, light a fire, do whatever they were doing, crazy stuff, you know, it became a party zone. But what we need to see here is we need to see the government do something. And look, there's legislation and promise around in politics. Since 07, there's a um, a convention that needs to be enacted, and for that to happen, we need to have primary legislation brought through the bureaucracy. And I've mentioned this to the minister through debate on three different occasions, and it's been promised that primary legislation to be brought on board. And like in fairness to Minister Ryan, he hasn't delivered on this one. And like you could argue the point quite calmly that the biggest polluter we have in some parts of our coast are these actual vessels that are just rushing away and state's responsibility to move on it, whether locally or nationally. So there's a real, you know, implication here that the ministry needs to be really proactive, and I don't think he's prioritising this. Do, and and has there ever been a survey done as to how many of these shipwrecks are on our no, coastline? But, but, like, if you look at it from my part, for, from Kinsey and all to Baltimore, the coastline is littered with old um, sea wrecks that have been abandoned, not just sea wrecks now, like there's one in Kinsale that 13 years ago was literally taken up for the site of the old, the old bridge, tied up in a pier and left there since, and that's literally going to take the pier with it at some occasion into the actual sea. All the way down to the coast you have similar wrecks, and I think if my own counting there, two, the two years ago we did it, we counted 28 of us, oh. and that was only a real minor, you know, sit in your car, see what we can do kind of stuff, like, you know. Yeah, it but wasn't was a proper, a proper yeah. uh, survey. And is there ever any hope of getting the last known owners of these ships to cover yeah. some of the costs? <laughs> and I think that's what this convention was all about. It was an international convention uh, that was actually signed in 07, but we haven't actually in the, in, enacted in primary legislation. And that was about bringing the actual ownerships or the, whoever insures the actual vessel into task regarding this issue itself. And it kind of ties in this international protocol that everyone involved will actually have an implication of they'd be tied into the financial whereabouts. If it, if it went to ground, they'd be actually liable. Because we're not tied into that convention, because we haven't enacted it, we haven't the power to actually chase the owner. Now, obviously, there's too many companies and everything set up. 
so like we're not sure exactly who the owner of this vessel is here. But like without this convention itself, we have no legal power to change the owners to that degree because they're not relevant in the oil itself. And I think that becomes the legal issue regarding how we deal with this. Like if the minister needs to do something here, he needs to do one of two things. And that's the actual um no big convention of twenty uh, of two thousand seven or else put a fund in place to actually go away and find out how many of these wrecks are in place and put a plan in place to actually deal with it. Like, my last conversation, she was with one in Kinsale, and I had a private entity that came to me saying that for a certain sum of money they would deal with the, the one in Kinsale. I passed on to Cork and the Council. Unfortunately, Cork and the Council don't want to go there, you know. So there is a reluctance for well, the yeah, they, prob- they probably don't have the money either. John in Cove says, how many more reports are going to be done on this particular wreck? All of this could be avoided. Cork County Council and the Port of Cork authorities must have seen it coming into shore from miles away. Why wasn't the Irish Navy sent out to sink the ship? Look, that's a logical statement. I don't think, unfortunately, we've issued the job with the Irish Navy at the moment. I don't think sinking the ship would be appropriate either. I think, you know, that would only be kind of moving our problem offshore by another 10 or 12 miles. Like, this piece, this vessel needs to be taken out of water. Like, there's, you know, steel, everything else attached to it. I think, you know, burying it at sea wouldn't be the appropriate thing to do. But, like, there has to be a proactive But something needs to be done. Something needs to be done uh, for sure and I can see a lot of people uh, saying we're going to have to wait until somebody is killed and then we'll be all out uh, saying why didn't we do something and hand-wringing will go on. Uh, That's from uh, Lawrence. Okay, listen, Tim, we leave it there. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, that is uh, Fianna Gael Senator Tim Lambert. 0818-103-103. Lines remain open. I mentioned earlier one of uh, my first texts in this morning was from a listener who had recently gone for breast check and ended up getting a text message from breast check asking her to take part in a patient survey and she was fearful that it was a uh, scam. Well, I've since had some more texts in from other women, including Anne from Mitchellstown. Uh, hi, uh, Patricia. I got that very same text from Breast Check. I got that message as well. And the number was a 198 number. I also thought it was a scam. And uh, someone else says, I got that very same text a message. I had my breast check two weeks ago. And then this text message uh, arrived with the telephone number at the, the top was 1980. When I checked it, the postcode was for Thailand. Uh, so I immediately thought it was a scam. And didn't click on the link and what we've done now is we've actually sent an email off to Breast Check they're not the quickest though for coming back but anyway we'll we'll be forever hopeful and just trying to find out exactly what number they're using on that because when you when you see a number like that a big long 1980 number people straight away think oh this is a scam and people are right people absolutely are right uh, to uh, if your gut tells you that it might be a scam then don't uh, click on anything but on the breast check website they do say that after your breast screening appointment you may be invited to take part in a survey and it is sent out by SMS text uh, message uh, so we know that they do say send out text messages but we're just waiting for confirmation on what number they actually send that out from. So hold with us on that and hopefully we'll get something back from them perhaps before the close of the programme. Uh, Kay heard me talking about breakfast rolls. We were talking about the cost of living when I had Michael Kilcoyne on the programme earlier from the Consumers Association led somebody to say that they were they left behind a breakfast roll 7.20 at a deli counter. Thought it was really expensive. Staff at the deli counter said you won't get it any cheaper but our 
Justin said you will and that his local shop sells them for five uh, euro. Well, I can beat the 7.20 or should I say Kay can beat the 7.20. Recently went in to get a breakfast uh, roll. I would describe it, says Kay, as a medium breakfast roll with less than the basics. The charge, nine euro fifty. Outrageous. I, like your previous texter, left it behind at the deli uh, counter. God, the, the good old jumbo breakfast roll that Pat Short sings about. I wonder how much that would uh, cost. It would certainly be way more if poor old Kay reckoned it is less than the basics. So eight one eight one oh three one oh three. I mentioned Tony Houlihan earlier on uh, because Michael, one of our listeners watched the late late, wasn't happy with the Tony Houlihan uh, interview. Uh, and I said, Well, did did he lead us through the pandemic and all of that with everything that was going on with his wife dying of cancer? Somebody says, Patricia, Tony Houlihan did not lead this country through the pandemic. He simply passed on the messages from the World Health Organization. And now he has written a book because he thinks he is a celebrity. If you do want to accuse him of leading anything, he did lead us through the smear test scandal. And I think that's the one that upset so many people on Friday night was the fact that when he was asked about the smear test uh, scandal, he quickly avoided it and moved on. And there was an opportunity on live uh, TV for people to hear his uh, his views. 0818103103. Jim is on about the sporting events at the weekend and in particular the golf. And Jim says, now, at the outset, I would say I'm not the biggest fan of golf, but I did watch it the weekend. But I have a question. How did Europe retain the Solomon Cup if it was a draw? Some of your listeners might be able to explain. Well, I could actually explain that one to you, uh, Jim. Uh, they, the reason if it is a draw, the rules say that whoever won it previously retains it. And I think they've won the this was their third so- so- Solomon Cup. Uh, so that's the reason. I think it's the very same for the Ryder Cup as well. If it's a draw, it's left as a draw and whoever previously won it, they're deemed to be uh, the winner uh, for that particular uh, tournament. So that's the reason that they held on to the cup. But Jim says, well done to Leona Maguire and a great performance. Well done to Irish rugby and management and hopefully the Irish media aren't blowing this up too much by saying it's going to be a repeat of Ireland and South Africa in the World Cup final. Uh, When one particular Townsend, I think is the name of the guy, was interviewed about their game against Ireland in the group stages. He said Ireland seems to think they're already in the quarterfinals. And then when I went back to the studio, the presenter, Joe Malloy, said we are already in the final. Hopefully the media isn't too much putting too much pressure on the Irish team like many years ago. And guess what happens? They flopped at the quarterfinal stage. And remember, it's more than likely uh, it will be New Zealand that they will be playing. And when is the last time Ireland could... When is the last time Ireland could play the All Blacks? I'm, 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 your text is a bit mixed up there. Anyway, um, but uh, or else it could be France. And if it was France, they'd have support, home uh, support, maybe best to avoid them. Well done also to the Irish ladies team on a good win under new management. Oh, that was another event. Yeah, there were so many sporting events at the weekend, I should have mentioned. So thank you, Jim, for pointing out that I forgot to mention the ladies uh, who played a blinder at the weekend as well. 0818103103. And then somebody was returning home from holidays. No name on this text. Patricia, having just returned from a holiday abroad. 
I was shocked at the conditions on arrival at Dublin Airport. There was no great Irish welcome. Just I felt what I could only describe as a bad tempered employee who obviously hadn't slept well and he was shouting directions at everyone. There was chaotic scenes in the small dingy arrival hall. It seems incredible that such an antiquated airport building is still in use today as it's the first port of call for so many visitors and the start of their Irish experience. Not a good lasting impression for anyone and I'm assuming you flew into Terminal 1 because the new building Terminal 2 is much better. I was recently on our trip we had to go out of Dublin as well and I'm not a fan of Dublin but needs must when you can't get flights um, to your particular destination out of Cork. Yeah Terminal 1 isn't the most welcoming of uh, buildings I have to say and when I was there it was very packed it was hard to get seats it seemed grubby um, and then we ended up parking in Terminal 2 so we had to walk into Terminal 2 then to when we were going back out and there's a stark difference Terminal 2 I know it's a new building it's, it's, it, that is a, a very very different building and then of course when you're blessed enough to be able to fly out of Cork Cork Airport is always such a welcoming place to leave and such a welcoming place to come back into so yeah uh, they need to do something to smarten up Terminal 1 uh, for sure. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. 0818103103. Morning Patricia, I've been on to you a few times. We overgrown hedgerows and dangerous trees in a few townlands, particularly between Inchigila and the Bantry Line in West Cork. The particular stretch via Money Lee and Cool Mountain. Many other listeners text in after me the last time I mentioned it on the programme, including one local councillor, Declan Hurley, who said he had already spoken to the council as he passes this area himself and he was shocked also at how bad this area was when it came to overgrown hedgerows and dangerous trees. Can anyone now please, please let us know when they will be cut back because we're out of the hedge cutting the ban on hedge cutting, where we're into the season when we can't cut hedges. Anyway, this is uh, John says, can anybody let us know when they're going to cut back the overgrown hedgerows and dangerous uh, trees? The school buses are now back up and running. It's getting dark and it is extremely dangerous. Hope by highlighting it on the programme, you may be able to help thanking you. And that's from John, who signs himself a truck driver in Inchigila, who obviously has to drive on that particular stretch quite a lot. It's really frustrating. And it's also, and I don't know if it's the case with uh, John, wing mirrors can be snapped off, the trucks can be scratched and, and, and added to. It's also dangerous, particularly when I start to the programme by talking about the, the road carnage that we had this weekend. We need to do everything to try to make our roads as safe as possible. John, we'll see what we can do, if we can get any data on when in particular that stretch of road you're talking about Money Lee and Cool Mountain on the Inchigila to Bantry Line. Thank you for the update on it though to 086 to 103 103. C103 Jobs. Mechanical and electrical engineer is required for building services in Cork. CVs please to John Paul Construction Limited at gmail.com. Mobile tyre fitters are wanted in Mill Street. Now, this is to provide call-out and breakdown services. You need to apply by email, please, to h.ohtires at gmail.com. Or you can phone, text or WhatsApp 87 The Donkey Sanctuary, they've got a vacancy for a veterinary nurse. CVs, please, to joanne.nevin at thedonkeysanctuary.ie. 
and general operatives with a food environment background, please, are wanted to work in the Ballyvourney area. You can email cmurphy at frsrecruitment.com or call them at 86 You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086-2103-103. Court today on C103. Last week, Nursing Homes Ireland held their annual conference for this year and they accused the government of trying to buy care on the cheap by not funding private nursing homes to meet the challenges of our growing older population. Tyg Daly of Nursing Homes Ireland uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Tyg. Good morning, Patricia. And always great to speak with you. Is the main issue still very much the difference in funding for public versus private nursing homes, even though you all do the same job? Absolutely. Look, that's at the nub of it. Um, Look, we don't want to be completely fixated on on funding. But when you look at the challenges that are uh, facing the nursing home sector, when you look at the number of closures that have happened over the last number of years, you know, it does point uh, back to the the, um, inequity and the discrimination in funding. And that's just not us saying it. Uh, we've spoken before, there are a myriad now of government reports that have highlighted the requirement to address the, the, the funding discrimination. And unfortunately, they haven't been acted on. And, you know, if they're not acted upon soon, we're going to have further closures. And that's not in the best interest of all the people. And at all, at all, it's not in the best interest of, of the entire health service. And, of course, both private and public nursing homes, they have to meet the same... HICWA standards, and HICWA standards can cost money. Absolutely, and that, that's at the nub of it. I mean, you know, ultimately, nursing home care is highly regulated, as it should be. Uh, you know, the, the care needs of an ageing demographic uh, are complex, um, and the standards are the same, um, but the funding mechanism, it, it, you know, it, it, there's not even a minor discrepancy. The discrepancy is of the order of 70-plus percent in some cases. Um, Colin Burke, the Fine Gael, health spokesman spoke at our conference and on Thursday and he highlighted we were in Kilkenny, he highlighted that the difference in Kilkenny uh, was o- almost 200% of a difference between the, the, the cost of public care and, and the cost of private care. So we, we must address that and as I say, if we don't, there are going to be, you know, very, very significant medium and long-term consequences. But I thought I read that there had been some progress in that the HSE were saying about 60% of nursing homes got increased funding. Yeah, look, I think you have to acknowledge that there is some uh, improvement in the last 12 months. But the the difficulty there is that, you know, it is playing catch-up on a a very, very, um, you know, big gap effectively. So the increases in the last year are of the order of about 6 to 7%. But your listeners will know that the uh, the cost of living is running, in some cases, at double that. Uh, when you look at the, the costs, for example, of light and heat in nursing homes, uh, in some cases it's up on 2 and 300% higher uh, than previous. So, yeah, look, I think it's important to, I suppose, stay positive. Um, if you weren't positive in, in the health service and, indeed, in nursing home care, it will be very difficult to, to continue. So we do need to stay positive. But we also need to highlight that unless and until action is taken to address the underlying issue, we are in a very, very difficult space. Um, that, is, that is the reality. Um, so, you know, and, and as you said at the outset, I did say that. I said that, you know, government is ultimately forcing the private and voluntary sector to provide care on the cheap. Um, you know, that will have significant consequences uh, both now and into the future. Yeah, and and we have an ageing population, and and it's you know it's great 
thanks to medical science, we're, we're living longer, which is fantastic. Right. And we'll all get old uh, one day and we'll all hope that we'll get old one day. And, and we may, we may uh, need care. So this is an issue that while it's affecting people at the moment, it's an issue that ultimately is going to affect all of us and all of our families at some stage. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're dead right. I mean, you've heard me speak on many occasions. You know, I think sometimes we talk about ageing as, as it's a problem. It's not a problem. It's a, it's a very welcome uh, challenge. But it's one that we should face up to and meet. And I'm not saying that there are easy answers here. It isn't all about money. You know, there's an issue around workforce. There's an issue around planning, for example, in local authorities to make sure that we have nursing homes in the right place. So there's a myriad of issues there. And as we highlighted the, the other day, you know, the National Economic and Social Council in 2012 you know, 11 years ago, highlighted the requirement to sit down and plan for the long-term care needs of our ageing population. And, you know, unfortunately, nothing has happened. You know, there's been piecemeal bits and pieces done here and there. But, you know, in terms of having an overarching policy, uh, it, it isn't there. That's the, that is the, the sad reality. Uh, and we also called at our conference on Tuesday. I mean, I was struck recently, and I know you've had some dis- discussion on it and, uh, on, on radio locally around the constituency boundaries, for example. Mm. And the point we'd make is that that's the right thing to do. You know, you look at population, you say we have an increased population in, in Mallow or in Blarney or in Cork City or wherever, and we need extra representation in the Oireachtas. Our point is that we need to do a very similar and parallel exercise for the ageing population. So we need to say, right, OK, there's an increasing population of over 65, over 75, or over 85 in whatever part of the country. And then we need to say, OK, well, Given that we have that changing demographic, we now need to provide services to meet that ageing demographic, whether it's home care, daycare, meals on wheels, independent living and nursing home care. So that's what I mean by by planning, Uh, because until such time as we do that, we're always going to be firefighting. and, 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 you know, that's not going to serve older people well. And it's not going to serve society well. And at all, all, it's going to, you know, lead to more and more problems in our already overstretched acute hospital system. Yeah. And the thing is, that, like, we have the hard evidence. We have the evidence of how many older people live in each area, thanks to uh, the wonderful guys and gals who work at the Central Statistics Office Correct. and the census that's done every four years. So it shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone at government levels when suddenly they realise, oh, there's a lot of older people in that particular area and we don't have a nursing home. The evidence is clearly there in front of them. That's right, absolutely. And that's the point we're making. And, you know, the reality is that it'll be large. I mean, HICWA in their annual review for 2022 pointed out that in many parts of Ireland now where there are nursing homes closing, um, you know, they won't be rebuilt again. So our fear is that, in, you know, maybe not in the immediate future, but definitely in the next five, ten years, you could see parts of Ireland where a person would have to travel 30, 40, 50 miles to get a nursing home. I mean, that goes against the principle of community care. We're talking all the time about reorientation of care from hospitals, from a kind of a hospital-centric model to a community model. Um, what we're doing now is, is at odds with that very policy. And that's the point that we're continuously making. And you know, there is an opportunity in the budget. The budget won't fix everything. But there is an opportunity to send out the right signals. And that's the conversation I've been having with officials in the department, uh, Minister Butler, and indeed anybody who would listen to me <laughs> um, across the cabinet, is to say. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's important that the budget sets out a kind of a vision, if you like, and sends out the right signal to the sector so that we can stabilise existing provision because the last thing we need is now is further homes closing. So we need to stabilise all of the existing nursing homes and then take a step back and say, OK, we're not going to lose any more in the short term. And now how can we plan for, for the future uh, on top of that? And you're obviously talking with your members, the length and breadth of the country. Are some in danger of closing? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I don't want to be, you know, defeatist about it, but if something doesn't change, you know, there's an inevitability around further closures. Uh, I think we spoke earlier in the year when PwC launched their report. They launched it on the 31st of May, and their figures highlighted that 31%, or 33%, rather, almost a third of all homes uh, had lost money, operationally lost money uh, in, the, in the prior year. And, you know, while any business, whatever it is, could afford to lose, money in a year, maybe on a two-year cycle. On an ongoing basis, that's just unsustainable. And that's what's happened with the numbers that have closed. I mean, we had straw hall in Fermoy, for example, that we spoke of last year. Um, so, they're, they're, you know, this, all of the homes across the country are, are struggling. There's no doubt about it. On many fronts, you know, staffing obviously is a huge challenge. Light and heat, as I said. Um, you know, with uh, sick pay, uh, very positive development, the auto enrollment of pensions. All of those are significant costs that have to be met. And given that our sector is effectively funded by the exchequer through fair deal, if, if, if the fair deal isn't increased, then it means that nursing homes are being squeezed. And uh, the only answer to that, unfortunately, is, is closure in many cases. Yeah, and I've been recently talking with, on the other end of the scale, the creches and the childcare sector yeah. and how core funding isn't working there, particularly for some of the smaller uh, providers. The bigger providers seem to do okay, about, okay out of it. And it does seem to be the same with the nursing homes. It's the smaller, the ones that traditionally are in a rural area. And I always get a bit panicky when I hear about a small in many cases, a family-run nursing home when it closes uh, in uh, an area because it will may, in a majority of cases, it's the only nursing home in that area. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and, and that's, the, that's what we're seeing, you know. And I think sometimes we can get, you know, overly, uh, I suppose, focused on the small. I mean, we, we saw one recently in Hatton Ryan Galway, you know, 60 beds. Wow. Uh, that wouldn't have been regarded as a small home. So, you know, each home is different. Um, you know, it has different pressures, you know, maybe it is highly borrowed, for example, high borrowing. Um, so each one needs to be looked at on its own merits. 
um, and supported on that basis. And that's the genesis of the fair deal, is that the fair deal, you know, our members are, are, are supposed to negotiate uh, with the treatment purchase fund on the fee rate. But, you know, in reality, the negotiation is, is, is non-existent. You know, you don't have a choice, really, in terms of the fee rate that you're, that you're being granted. Um, so while it is, as you say, in the last number of years, you know, in many cases, the small and rural, now we're seeing the medium. Uh, and, you know, there's an inevitability, as I said, if we don't deal with the underlying funding issue, that it will be the medium and, and the large in, in time to come. Yeah, but I go back to my original question to you, and it's the one that I can never understand. The HSC know how much it costs yeah. to run a nursing home because they run their own public ones. And yet they expect private ones to do it for less. It just doesn't make any sense to me. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've been struggling with this for a long number of years. The department themselves undertook a review, um, I think it was published about three years ago now, called the VFM, which was a value for money report. And yeah, maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people would argue that the dependency of residents might be different. But that's not the case anymore. The private and private sector provides care to 80% of the older population in nursing home care. The complexity, the dependency, the age profile of those who live in nursing homes is much, much higher, as you said at the outset. HICWA standards are the same across all. Um, you know, staffing levels, pretty much the same. Um, where, where we are finding it more and more difficult is in terms of, of recruitment and retention of staff. Um, and that, you know, is down to funding at the end of the day. Yeah, and last week I was reading about the, the problem that many hospitals all over the country have with delayed uh, discharges. So when we don't have enough hospital beds for some of those delayed uh, discharges, this impacts everybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just recently, University Hospital in Galway, for example, Hickory did a, a report in, in Galway, and it highlighted that uh, the discharge coordinators in Galway were, were highlighting that because of the closure of a number of homes in the locality, they were finding it more and more difficult. Um, so, you know, we're in for a, You hear the INMO speaking. Uh, you hear, you know, the minister himself and indeed junior minister talking about it in the winter. Um, so, you know, it's going to be even more difficult if we're going to not have the capacity in the community, whether it's, you know, nursing home care uh, or, or home care. Um, so the, the, the lack of planning is at the nub of it all. Um, and, and, you know, the funding element, is, is, there's an opportunity to address some of that in the budget on the 10th of October. And, you know, we've had good engagement, to be fair, across the political divide. Um, uh, last last week I was at the uh, launch, as I said, Colin Burke was speaking at our, at our conference. I was at the launch of the Sinn Féin uh, health budget on, on, on Friday last. Um, and, you know, many of them are saying what we exactly say is that significant additional funding is required in budget to stabilise the nursing home sector. OK, well, we know negotiations are ongoing this week uh, with regard to the budget. So uh, let's wait and see. Tig, pleasure as always. Thank you for that. Thank you indeed. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Tig Daly of uh, Nursing Homes uh, Ireland. And by the way, we've just had uh, Breast Check get back on to us to say they do send out a text message from a rather strange looking number. So that 1980 number uh, and that there is a link for them to click. That's for the ladies who are a little bit worried about that particular text message. But Mary says, my advice to all listeners, whenever you get a text message like that, is just ignore it. I never reply to any of them. And by doing that, I don't have to worry if I'm going to be scammed or not. Only this week, I got two text messages from on um, post. Yeah, and Mary, I have to say, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I got uh, two this week or two last week as well from uh, on post. And you kind of stop and you look at it because I was waiting on a package to arrive. But then, of course, straight away, when I, when I looked at the link, I realised uh, straight away that it was... Uh, 
uh, a scam. So yeah, the on-post one, definitely. And the on-post one, I guarantee to you, between now and Christmas will increase because they know, these scam artists know, that a lot of people will be ordering items online and they will be waiting on an item to come from on-post. And because of Brexit and all that, uh, we know that depending on the items you buy, you may have to pay um, excise uh, duty or customs on some of the items you purchase from the United Kingdom because they're outside of the EU. So they know that people are waiting and if you're really waiting on a, pa- a package to arrive, you may think, oh, that's my post, I need to, to pay that money. And usually the ones I got last week was for a very small amount of money. I think one of them was for €2.90. But I knew, uh, thankfully, I was aware that it was a scam. So do please be careful of that. But there is certainly an increase in the ones purported to be coming from Unpost, but Unpost are at pains to point out they won't send out a text message looking for you to click on a link to pay them. 0818103103. Bernie, taking your calls. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork Today at C103.ie. Today on C103. Researchers are calling for a change to Irish schoolyards to help support children's play. And it's been led by a study at University College Cork. Now, Michelle Bergen is an occupational therapist and a PhD student at UCC. And she joins me to discuss uh, the study. Good morning to you, Michelle. Good morning, Patricia. Thank you very much for having us on. Well, thank you for taking time out to talk to us. I suppose a bit of background here. This study went on over a three-year period, so it's it's been a long study. Did you speak to both pupils and teachers? Yes, exactly, Patricia. We wanted to find out um, from uh, teachers' and children's perspectives because there's been so little research in an Irish context we thought that was the best starting point. So this study has... um, also involved speaking with occupational therapists who have a specific interest in in design and children's participation in play. So we looked at, um, there was four different studies involved um, to capture everyone's perspective. Would I be right in saying that the design of most of our schoolyards are just basically hard, blank spaces? Uh, The ones in which we studied, so the the, the small um, number of, so there was 10 teachers, that's 10 different schools, the children were involved in two different schools were definitely um, reflective of that but we don't really have existing data on what's the provision. The surveys to date have have mentioned it um, but they've been embedded in other studies so what we really need to find out is how many schools aren't meeting the requirements of of good play provision because it is um, a children's rights issue and so that would be the next stage and it's really a core recommendation of our research. And and are there an any policies, for example, on what size a playground should be based on the number of pupils in the school? Or are there any policies, you know, on good play provision? Yeah, and there's a lot we can learn from. And even within um, Irish educational policies, so the Department of Education have a building and designs unit and they've updated their technical design guidelines with some really um, evidence-based um, recommendations to schools. Um, however, they tend to be consideration so it's the funding attached to those that proves difficult so they're definitely making a lot of progress in terms of embedding um, that consideration when you're especially with a new build that you would consider play provision not just hard surface but soft surface areas um, natural areas and diverse provision so not just one type of play um, but the difficulty is it's a consideration rather than a requirement if that ah, makes sense ah. so that's where we need to take the next step. But 
also, there's lots of international studies and definitely our UK counterparts in Wales and Scotland have produced wonderful guidance for us from a school's perspective to create what they call play-friendly or play-sufficient schoolyards. But we have to be conscious that the Irish context is the Irish context and what might work in inner city Cork um, versus might work, what would work in, in, in West Cork are, are very different and you need to accommodate for that. Yeah, and different school sizes as well. You can have yeah. very large schools in, in an urban area and then in a rural area, you can have a small two-teacher school which would have uh, much less pupils. So all of that would have to be factored in. And and I read in your study that, you know, when when children have their supervised break time, uh, I didn't realise it's as much as 10% of the day. Did the children talk about what do they do in the playground during their break times? Yes, the children I spoke with were from two Desh schools and they spoke um, that football and tag and chatting with their friends and friendships was uh, just really came to the to the fore in terms of why, why children felt the break time was important. The chance to be with friends, to develop friendships um, was so important. So we have to be mindful of that when we talk about play, the purpose of play for children to have fun and to be with their friends. But really the activities that were available to them were football and tag. Um, because of the restricted space. There was often a concrete space and there wasn't much else they could generate in terms of play with the resources to hand. Um, So, yeah, they felt that there was a lack of options for them in terms of how they could generate play. We would have heard over the years, Michelle, on this programme of some schools not allowing children to run in the playground. Now, this obviously is for fear of litigation. Is Mm -hmm. is that common? We don't have, um, again, existing data on how many um, schools would, would not be allowing certain things. But we also don't have how much litigation there is, you know, how many um, people have brought litigation towards schools for these um, risks. But it definitely was something that all of the teachers I interviewed were mindful of. And they said it was one of the biggest restricting factors for them in terms of supporting children's play was um, that they had to prioritise health and safety over everything else because that was their responsibility. And that is in our national school policy, that the responsibility of teachers to ensure health and safety of children. And that's very important, but it also means that teachers are prioritising that against other things. So I suppose when we talk about schools not allowing for play, I think we have to have a conversation about this at a, a societal level, because we are contributing to that fear um, in a very real way in terms of litigation. So I think this... And that's why the opportunity to talk on your show is so great, because I think this is not just the school's issue. They have to have support from the communities and from us in society around how to make this change. Bullying, did that get mentioned? And Does bullying occur in the playground? Yeah, it did. And, and definitely um, both the teachers and children mentioned it and how, I suppose, how difficult and challenging that can be, especially as children, older children on the yard. Teachers spoke about it in terms of how to negotiate the best interests of one child, for instance, and the best interests of the whole group and how to, to negotiate and navigate that. And that has been spoken a lot about in child's rights research also. But they also spoke about it often being, especially the social types of bullying, that that would often be difficult to spot, you know, very invisible within the yard. But the children themselves spoke about how it, they spoke more about being left out rather than the word bullying. Mm. They said that they had, and one very positive thing that came from the children was they all spoke about the work that was being done within schools around bullying. Um, And that was really interesting, I think, that they felt that they had learned about bullying within the classroom, 
Um, but the challenge for children was when it's happening on the schoolyard, it's reporting it. So re- by reporting it, they, they feel there's social consequences for themselves among their peers. And so this means that we really have to bring all of the learning and all of the work we're doing on bullying within the classroom and the, the more psychologically based programs, I think, into the schoolyard. How do we actually put it in practice in the schoolyard? Um, that's what children were really finding challenging. Yeah, I was talking with a friend of mine and, and her, her little lad, he's only um, seven or eight, uh, is getting excluded from the group mm-hmm. that he had been playing with in, in the schoolyard. That You know, one child in particular doesn't want to play with him anymore and has managed to persuade the others not to play with him. And it just, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And, and you don't, you know, you think of bullying as somebody getting a black eye or somebody, you know, somebody being punched. But like that type of exclusion, that is bullying. Well, it's it's definitely exclusion, and it also, I suppose, we highlighted issues of of racism in the arts, and I know these are very difficult things to to for people to consider when they're talking about children's play in a schoolyard. But but these things happen on schoolyards, and I think the reason why this research is connecting with the public is because everyone has an experience of the schoolyard, and they have a tacit understanding that exclusion and bullying does occur. So it's very, um, it's, it's what we do about it, I think. Um, and what we need to do is talk to the children. And there are ways in which we can, there's very tangible ways in which we can improve the situation. If there's only one type of play, for instance, football, and you're left out of that, there's no other options for you. So you are completely excluded. But if we have more diverse options available for children, that immediately changes the landscape for them in terms of uh, enjoying that time. So there's, it's sometimes very difficult to know what do we do about this, apart from understand that it's happening. But there are very tangible ways in which we can change and support children um, to to play and enjoy their play experience on the yard, whether they're playing alone or with others. That's the first step. And then the next step would be to look at how children can play together and, I suppose, be respectful of each other's playwrights. Yeah, and I know the department, uh, I mean, obviously we're into budget, budgetary times and, and they're, mm-hmm. they're, every department is looking for money. Uh, would it cost a lot, do you believe, to make the playground happy, safer places for our children? I think in terms of the benefits, if we were to do a cost-benefit analysis, we've got, as you mentioned, it's 10% of the school day. There's our teachers and our SNAs are out on the yard um, for 10% of that school day. So we're already spending money. We're already spending lots of money on this break time. What we're not spending money on is the spatial, you know, the, and the guidance to teachers in terms of what to do. So I think if we looked at, for instance, all the new bills that are happening now, there's such an opportunity to think just a little bit in advance before a bulldozer goes in and maybe takes down a hill just to make it flat and, and kind of just thinking through, would that make a better play landscape for our children in the school in the long term? Um, instead of removing hedges and trees, should we consider this differently? So each school would almost have to map out their existing um, surroundings and their boundaries, think about the children that are coming to their school, think about their staff as well, um, because they're working in the schoolyard, and how to make that the best space. So I think it's time teachers need, and definitely the teachers I spoke to felt that if they had some time within um, their training time allocated to this, that the changes may not always be costly changes, but they, they don't have the time at the moment to sit down and plan them. They're responding 
to crisis in the schoolyard rather than making positive changes. Okay, and Catherine, who is a teacher on math leave at the moment, congratulations to you, Catherine, uh, says, well done to Michelle on this piece of research. Uh, we, uh, I and other teachers at my school have been saying it for years, something needs to be done about the uh, schoolyard. We need to do more to support our children through play. Play is uh, so important. Would you please ask Michelle uh, to forward her piece of research on to the Minister for Education? Uh, <laughs> what, what, yeah, so thank you for that, Catherine. What happens to your research now, uh, Michelle? Thanks very much, Catherine. Um, I think that we're trying to disseminate at different levels, so I absolutely appreciate Catherine's um, support there because I think um, that has been so validating for our research to have the children and teacher um, say that this is important, and that was the first step. We needed to be sure about that, I suppose, in order to take this, because we think it's important um, based on all the evidence of play in schools, and we're making the connection now to why can we not connect this with inclusive educational policy? And that would mean that teachers then have a connection with their curriculum and with their work and so that they could invest the time in the schoolyard. So we think that this is the most pragmatic solution and way forward. We're also disseminating in publications, in conferences and all opportunities we can get because change happens at different levels um, and we have to think about the best ways in which we can influence policy, but also influence um, and create connections between schools and between teachers and between children in projects. There are exemplars of excellent practice around the country. Can we share that with each other in order to um, inform schools where they don't have to start from scratch. Yeah, it, is, it isn't rocket science. We can look at where it's working well and, and learn from them. Listen, Michelle, a great piece of research. Uh, well done to you and the rest of the team. And thank you for taking time out to talk to us today. Thank you very much, Tisha. We really appreciate this. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is Michelle Bergen, who is an occupational therapist and a PhD student at, at UCC. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. Uh, Bernie is taking your calls. Uh, you can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 And just an update on something that we mentioned on Friday. Kay in Churchtown had contacted us because she had a problem with a blocked drain in her back garden. She got non Irish water but was getting nowhere and asked us if we could do anything, if we could intervene in any way. So uh, we got onto Irish Water, explained where Kay was living, explained the problems she was having with her blocked drain in her back garden and explained that she had been in contact with them and could they please sort it out where she was back to us this morning to say within an hour of us contacting them, they were back out and the problem was uh, sorted and she just phoned to say uh, thank you, glad. Uh, And I never know whether it is because we contact them or not but time and time again we hear if we do an intervention like that, lo and behold somebody is out to them. I like to think it's just a coincidence that they were going to call anyway. But good to know you got your problems sorted, Kay. Thank you for that. And Breast Check have been back on to us by email. Our thanks uh, to Suzanne at Breast Check. Just about that text message that we highlighted earlier this morning and then we had more women saying they got the same text. So they're back on to confirm that it is not a spam text. Uh, people who have had a breast check. Not everyone, but people will get a text. They're endeavouring to get feedback from women who are using the screening service. And obviously, as I mentioned, it is in an effort to try to improve the uh, service. And uh, they say from late August, Breast Check has commenced inviting a selection of women after screening to take part in what is the patient experience survey. And it's to understand they, the women's experience of Breast Check. And uh, the purpose of the survey is to gather direct person experience from women, but there are pains to point out that it isn't a scam and they are asking people to take part. But see, I think when it comes from a funny telephone number, I think Breast Check may need to look 
at this again. And I would be interested in hearing from uh, Breast Check over the coming weeks and months how many people do click on the link and how many people do take part in the survey. And the survey is important for all of us women to ensure that the service is good and that women's experience of the service uh, is at the best that it can be. But we're all now so alert to text messages coming from random numbers that we don't know. We're constantly telling people not to click on links. I think Breast Check may need to think again about how they send out this particular uh, patient uh, survey, maybe send it out by post to people. Go back to the old traditional way of doing things. Send a letter in the post. People, uh, you know, and put a prepaid envelope inside it or uh, then maybe put a link on that people could do it online but I wonder because it was just interesting as soon as I called out the text I must have had four or five women straight away saying yeah I got the very same text and I deleted it because I thought it was a scam and somebody actually tried to see where the number was coming from and somebody reckoned it was coming from a, a number in Thailand so they definitely were thinking that it was a scam but Breast Checker it pains to point out and obviously it's only if you get a follow up text from Breast Check after you've had your mammogram and they are confirmed that it is not a scam. 0818103103. We spoke about bullying in the playground. I thought that was a really interesting piece of research from uh, that PhD student, uh, Michelle Bergen from uh, UCC, just looking at our playgrounds. And I just touched on bullying to see, you know, is, is does how much of the bullying goes on in the playground. And the teachers do their very best. Obviously, it's a large playground with a lot of children running about. Hard to keep an eye on everyone. And as I say, a friend of mine, her little lad is just, is being excluded in a of course, exclusion is a form of bullying and he's so upset about it that he's not part of the friendship group anymore because one lad decided I don't want to play with you anymore. And of course, as as what happens with bullies, the rest, unfortunately, uh, follow suit. And that is very much happening in the playground, not happening inside in the classroom. So the teacher might not be able to see it. So it was interesting to see in that study that that exclusion was highlighted amongst the pupils uh, as well. So any good that can come out of that piece of research, it would be great if we took a look at our playgrounds. Well, that prompted a listener to say, I, I'm a woman well into my 40s. And there's a gang of friends I've actually known since our school days. And I have to say, some of them are still bullies. Isn't that shocking? They were bullies as children. They're now mature women, if I can say that, about women in in their 40s. And they're still bullies. It's probably just one in particular, says this texter, when she thinks about it, who is the main bully. She's the loudest of the rest of the group. And guess what? The rest just follow. Thankfully, I'm not that child anymore. And I just don't bother with her. I'm pleasant whenever we meet out in public. But really, I don't entertain her. And I certainly don't entertain the comments she makes about others. I just reply with, really? I never found that with them. I'd say my positivity is annoying her. And I, <laughs> I have someone in my world as well. I can identify with that. It was just, and I suppose it is, it is the form of bullying, just always negative, always putting people, people down. And I do the same thing. I'll always turn that negativity into something positive. So keep doing that and keep smiling. Uh, good on you. Uh, but you would like to think that bullies would grow out of it, but they don't always, unfortunately. 0818103103. Back on the rugby and the great win. John in East Cork says, uh, Patricia, everybody is delighted with Ireland's win on Saturday night. And grat- what a great win it was. To me, says John in East Cork, the only downside to all of the celebrations was the fact 
that our national anthem wasn't played. The Irish Rugby Union, I feel, should be ashamed of themselves. Are they ashamed of our heritage? And no comment from any of the media on this either, says John from East Cork. Yeah, the first match was in the first one against uh, Romania and they did Ireland's call. I thought then it was going to go into the national anthem, which normally happens, or they play the national anthem and then they go into Ireland's call. I don't know when and how that decision was was made, but I certainly saw uh, after the first match, after the Romanian match, there definitely was commentary online. People were giving out about it. I'll see if I can find out or maybe somebody listening knows the reason why they've gone for Irish Ireland's call and not our national anthem when you think every other country is playing their national anthem and it's a song we can be very, very proud of. And then on the overgrown hedges, remember we had the text in from John who is a truck driver regularly driving on the Bantry line towards Inchigila and he's just talking about the overgrown hedgerows. He's been on to us before about it and nothing has been done and we're in the season now where hedgerows can be cut, cut back. Well, a couple of texts in on that Hi Patricia, Paddy here from Kilmichael. Unfortunately, I too have damaged lights and mirrors on overgrown hedges hedges all too often. There's roadworks currently going on in the Bantry line and they're going on all this month of September. But unfortunately, nobody has looked up the back roads above it and opened drains or trimmed any of the hedges. Safety should be paramount for all and it definitely, it definitely is not from Cool Mountain to Inchigila, which is exactly the stretch of road that John was talking about. I pass children walking. They get off the school bus. They have no choice but to walk in the middle of the road. It's totally unfair on drivers, totally unfair on pedestrians. And something needs to be done by the council if the landowners don't decide to cooperate. Uh, that's Thank you. That's from Paddy from Kim Michael. Thank you, Paddy. And it does sound like an accident waiting to happen, doesn't it? Sean says, afternoon, uh, Patricia. I'm a taxi driver. I collect children along that exact stretch of road you're talking about, Cool Mountain, Money Lee, and I do it five days a week. I have a new car. My new car has been scratched. I had no other choice uh, but needed to pull into the hedges in order to avoid crashing. On top of this, there's wild deer roaming free and jumping across the road from the forest, especially in the morning times before 8am. And obviously if John is out doing school runs, he's out that early in the morning. Next month I'll be doing this and it'll be pitch black in the interest of health and safety for myself and my passengers action must be taken immediately. So says Sean. Thank you Sean. And John, the original truck driver, in his commentary mentioned the independent councillor in West Cork, Declan Hurley, who the last time we brought it up had contacted the programme. Well Declan has been back on again in with regard to John mentioning him uh, today with the overgrown hedges. He says I continue to push this issue. The frustration with it is that all the council can do is contact the landowners to notify them of their obligations to remain to maintain roadside verges uh, of which the council are doing on this issue. But this takes time. They have to search and identify correctly the correct landowners. And when done, a letter is issued to the landowner. It's then up to the landowner to cut the hedgerow during the open cutting season. And by the way, we're in the open cutting season. Having said that, I am now pushing the council to focus on the particularly bad sections of this road and get the council to cut them themselves and thereafter bill the landowner as the current condition is simply dangerous and it will cause accidents. And that's from Independent Councillor in West Cork, Declan Hurley. Keep us updated on that, Declan. And I think a lot of our texters who've been on today would be glad to hear that you're still pushing the issue. And you're right, if you can't get the landowners to do it, then get the council to go out or send contractors out and then build the landowners. And I think the threat of the, land, the landowner being billed might spur them on uh, to cut back the hedges and the dangerous trees and make it safer for all. 0818 103 103. Just staying on the traffic in 
issue. John in Clon was on. He wants to point out that there are traffic lights at DC's car park in Clonakilty. And he said he's noticed of late people are driving through red lights. The only time they'll stop if somebody's actually uh, crossing. But he said if nobody's crossing, they simply drive through the red lights. At the end of the day, the rules of the road state if the traffic light is red, red, guess what, guys and gals, you have to stop. 0818103103. We were speaking about ageing and people going into nursing, home care. Uh, that prompted a texture to say, Morning, Patricia, I was discharged from hospital last March. And when I was discharged, I was asked, will you need home help? of which I said, yes, I will. To date, we're into September. I haven't received a word from anyone. Both my husband and myself are both in our 80s. I don't have the energy for this appalling system that we find ourselves in. It is, is a disgrace. We worked all of our lives and this is how we're treated. And that always saddens me when I hear people waiting on. And I know the HSC will say they're doing their best to try to provide home care packages, but somebody getting released in March vocalises that they do need a little bit of support for herself and her husband and for nothing to happen by September. Uh, and it is an ongoing battle. You t- you need to keep on to them and on to them and on to them. It's, it's shocking. And I, actually just talking about older people, I'm reading a book at the moment uh, from Francis Brennan. You know Francis Brennan, the hotelier, and he's written a couple of uh, books, brilliant books. He's written a book at the moment because today actually is his 70th birthday. Happy birthday, Francis Brennan. And he's written a book about ageing and how age is all a number. But And, and he's going to be joining us on the programme I think it's on Thursday uh, but he really has a very positive outlet when it comes to ageing but one of the points he does make, make that's if you're healthy if you've got good health and you're fit and you're active and he's got lots of advice on how to stay fit and healthy and active and if you have the funds to do things that you want to do but even he you know he gives examples of it doesn't always have to cost money but it's such a positive book on uh, ageing and it's lovely to think that you know we'll go into old age and that we will be fit and healthy but God knows the reality is that not everyone is going to be fit and healthy and for some they are going to need a little bit of support in order to lead an independent life as possible and that support should be there for them. 0818103103 A reminder we're looking for your nutritional health questions please for Annalise because she'll be joining us this hour. The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing community and business supports all across the county see corkcoco.ie There will be an old clothing collection going on in Gagan Community Hall it's happening this evening between half six and eight p.m. If you want to have a clear out and talking about staying fit, healthy and active uh, when you've retired. Donnerail Active uh, Retirement Group, their next meeting is today. Arts and Crafts is at two when they will try their hand at soap making. And at three, they have their main meeting before they will have 10 minutes of go for life exercises. Come along and please bring your ideas to the table. It's everyone's group, so be part of the planning. Kilavallon Community Cafe will be open tomorrow morning from 10.30 to 12.30. All are welcome to meet up with old friends and to make new ones. Tea and scones, very reasonably priced, just three euro. And Ardfield Rathbury Gardening Club will be meeting this Thursday in the Parish Hall in Rathbury. That's at eight. The guest speaker will be Matty from Future Forests in Kale Kill. Teas and coffees and plants will also be for sale. All are welcome. Cork today on C103. And just on someone who was disappointed that the Irish National Anthem has not been played at the World Cup. Elizabeth said Patricia and instead they're singing Ireland's Call. As far as I know, because players come from Northern Ireland uh, and Southern Ireland, that's why the song is played uh, for the Irish international team, says Elizabeth. Yeah, that's the background uh, to why uh, Ireland's Call was written by Phil Coulter uh, 
wasn't it? But somebody else says, Patricia, they only play both the national anthem and Ireland's call at home games. At all away games, they only play Ireland's call. And it's because the players come from all over Ireland, some of which are British subjects. So that's the reason that I, I didn't realise that. Because I know I've heard the national anthem. I didn't realise that it was only in on Irish games uh, when it's at home that they do both. OK, thank you for that. I knew there'd be somebody in the know. And someone else wants to know, are the clocks going back? And says, I hope not. They are. The clocks are going back an hour and it will be the end of next month, 29th of October, 2am in the morning. And I'm very sad to disappoint that person, uh, Dan, uh, who was hoping that they wouldn't be moving. There's been talks forever and how many interviews I've done about stopping the clocks going forward and back. No doubt we'll have the discussions again next month. But for now, they are going back next month on the 29th of October. And just the, a little update. Um, this is coming from all the papers today on what's happening with the budget because we know the coalition leaders are meeting this evening and they'll start to intensify the negotiations on the scale of the cost of living package and obviously that's what people are waiting to hear in next month's budget. We've got the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, the Thánish Semihal Martin, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan and then they will be given presentations by the Finance Minister Michael McGrath, the Public Expender Minister uh, Pascal Donoghue. They'll do that this evening and that then is ahead of tomorrow's Cabinet meeting. Uh, Michael McGrath will present on taxation and Pascal Donoghue will give uh, the detailed opinion for expenditure. Now, while negotiations, we told, are still ongoing between civil servants in the individual departments and the finance and public expenditure departments, bilateral uh, budget meetings between ministers are also due to kick off and they'll happen in the middle of this week. It's understood that one of the key aspects up for discussion at tonight's meeting is going to be the size and the scope of the package of one-off cost of living measures as well as things like the broader plans on what they're, what they're going to spend on services like uh, social welfare and uh, child uh, care and um, ministers are set to... Now, of course, we do know in recent weeks we had Leo Varadkar and Michael McGrath both coming out and saying that the overall cost of living package will be smaller than what was delivered last year. However, there is speculation that the one-off payments that were given last year, they're likely to be repeated this year. The devil now will be in the detail and it seems ministers are also set to clash uh, today over a projected, hold your breath for this one, €1 billion euro overrun in the Department of Health and I heard at the weekend that for the first time ever more is spent in the Department of Health than is spent on social welfare. Social welfare has always been one of our biggest spends but the health budget because it just seems to run away every year and it's certainly getting more expensive this uh, year and their overspend for 2023 now is expected to be um, a billion. Obviously that's all going to play into next year's budget. A meeting of the Government's Cabinet Committee on Health is taking place this afternoon Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly uh, will be likely to be questioned, likely, I think he will be questioned, to try to account for what is a significant budgetary overrun in the HSC. And that's obviously a lot of tension between the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure who have to come up with the money to give to the Department of Health. Now at the weekend I did hear an interview with the HSE Chief Executive Bernard uh, Gloucester and he is the one indicating that yes, they reckon by the end of this year they'll have overspent by one billion because up to July the overspent was at 700 million. Now, when he was asked why, he's pointing the finger of blame at inflation. He's also pointing the finger of blame at additional demand. And he said it's additional demand and inflation, which was beyond 
what was projected. And he says it's the same for every healthcare system in uh, the world. Uh, so it isn't just in Ireland. But obviously, if they're going to need an extra billion this year, he was then asked, well, what kind of a budget are you going to need for next year? Will that have to be higher? And his, his answer was simply yes. So he's even going to be looking for more money uh, for next year. Now, government figures are also understood um, to be preparing for a separate significant bill to pay for accommodating Ukrainian refugees and other asylum seekers next year. That obviously is going to place f- further strain on the budget. And let's not forget, there's also a new public ser- new public sector pay deal that will also have to be factored in. And on welfare increases, which a lot of listeners contact us about, they're saying anywhere between an extra €10 and €12 is on the cards. There'll also be one, if not two, energy credits, the electricity credits. Although I did, I was reading up on this at the weekend. Remember there were the two, we got three €200 electricity credits last year. They're not certainly expecting it to be as generous as that. They're expecting one, if not two. But I did see at the weekend, it mightn't be the €200 each time. It might be €100 or €150. There's also going to be a series of one-off welfare payments that's also under consideration, like extra fuel allowance, extra money paid out for people who are on disability allowance, extra given to child benefit. Remember, they did a doubling of the child benefit, extra to be given, say, to old age pensioners. They're all one-off sums. They certainly are looking at that. And then for people at work, a two-pronged tax package is been talking about and that could see the standard rate cut-off point increase by between 1,000 and 1,500 if not more. And ministers are still, it seems, mulling over cuts to the universal social charge. I think the universal social charge has got to be probably one of the most hated of all of the taxes we paid and there's been a lot of talk and speculation as to what they'll do with the universal social charge and there's been calls for it to be scrapped because it was put in as a temporary measure when the downturn and when we had to get the bailout um, from Europe and it was put in at that time uh, always on on the promise that it would be short term and now it's, it looks like it's here to stay. So I can't I certainly can't see it being axed but I think even a cut to the universal social charge I think would be welcomed by uh, some. But then a listener says Patricia I'm retired I worked for 43 years of my life there's lots of jobs out there at the moment but my thinking is that welfare is simply too easy. Why would anybody get up and work? I'm not racist but I know uh, there are some people are coming into this country simply for a better life it's nothing to do with fleeing war or persecution. We have a very easy social welfare culture. Also, it is too easy to get disability allowance and disability benefit in this country. That all needs to be looked at. And some of your thoughts and comments coming into us uh, today. We are looking for your questions for Annalise Drissel, a nutritional therapist, please. 0818103103 or you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103. 103. Call Patricia with your comment. 0818 103 103. Can you talk to me? Court today on C103. And Annalise Russell of the Health Hub Times Square in Balancolic joining us. Good afternoon to you, Annalise. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're very, did you have a nice breakaway? Did you get away? Fantastic, yes. I was in the sun in Portugal and oh. it was lovely. Ah, fantastic. Well done. So you're back nice and refreshed. There's nothing like a bit of sun in your bones. Okay, straight into uh, questions. Noreen in Newmarket has an ulcer in her stomach. She takes scab has gone and she takes a prescription med from her doctor but nothing much is helping. Is there anything else you can recommend? Yes, there's something called mastic gum, M-A-S-T-I-C gum and that can be very, very good for ulcers. 
Um, there's a great product, and we use we we get always get really good feedback here on the in it, um, on it in the shop. It's called it's by a company called BioNutri, and it's Mastic Gum Plus, and it's a combination of Mastic Gum, Marshmallow, and a few other bits that are very good to help heal the stomach. Another very important thing for stomach lining is zinc, and the best one that we have is the zinc carnison made by Equest. Um, that has the added benefit as well. It can help tighten up that little um, sphincter muscle at the top of the stomach. So it's brilliant if you're suffering from any type of reflux and any type of burning. And then the last thing I would suggest is that she would take slippery elm before eating because that is like a kind of a natural gaviscon in that it will coat the whole stomach with a nice kind of mucilage layer, but it doesn't prevent you from kind of absorbing and preparing your food for absorption so it's less likely to kind of cause constipation or anything like that so i do the combination of the three of those hopefully you wouldn't need the slippery on and maybe the zinc for more than one month but i'd continue on the mastic gum for maybe up to three months just to make sure it's well and truly healed okay and what about diverticulitis what's the best treatment for that so prevention is the best um for for diverticulitis so Diverticulosis is actually what happens when the pouch, the, the smooth muscle of the colon is, is a kind of a, a very stretchy, smooth muscle. And if that kind of becomes weak and it blows out into a kind of a pouch, and that's what's called diverticulosis. And then if something gets stuck in it, um, it gets infected because it just sits there. And that's when you get itis. Itis is always inflamed. So diverticulitis. So ideally, you prevent yourself from getting um, the pouches, you know, getting food stuck in the pouches. Um, so in terms of your diet, you need to have plenty of fibre and plenty of soluble fibre because the soluble fibre is what keeps everything lovely and smooth, uh, whereas the insoluble fibre, I always try and explain it, you know, when you peel off the celery, you peel, peel off the strips, that's kind of insoluble fibre, so we don't digest that at all. So you can imagine that's kind of harder to process in the colon. What you want is the soluble fibre that makes it nice and and moist, like kind of very easy to pass stool. So that would be in things like um, porridge oats, apples, stewed apples are great, stewed pears, uh, prunes are great as well. They've got their foot of soluble fibre, mangoes are fantastic, rhubarb is great. So these are all great foot for the soluble fibre. And if you don't like those foods, you can simply put a spoon of psyllium husk on your breakfast cereal in the morning and that'll do the same job. And then I would definitely recommend taking a good quality probiotic because if you've got the good bacteria in your colon, They'll kind of occupy the space and they'll keep the bad guys at bay. They just won't allow them to overgrow. And that's what happens when you get infection. So I get a very good quality, broad spectrum probiotic, like Udo's is a very good one. Um, the BioCult isn't a bad one. We've got a great one here. Um, there's different horses for courses, really, Patricia, with probiotics. So if you're more prone to constipation, maybe the um, Lactobacillus rhamnosus is very good. If you're more... Um, uh, prone to diarrhea the Alflorex we get good feedback on so ask in your health shop for a good probiotic Okay a nurse in her early 50s what can I safely take with HRT for hot flushes I'm on the lowest dose of HRT says Marie and I work shift work hot flushes So sage is nearly always the best for hot flushes and actually it's very safe to take with HRT. In actual fact, most of the natural supplements are safe to take um, alongside HRT. It's not going to affect the the way HRT works. It might actually supplement it um, and it's not dangerous in in, in any way whatsoever. So don't feel that you can take a natural support if you're also on HRT. So sage normally is great for hot flushes. But what I often find works really well, Patricia, and again, great to augment HRT, is 
plant-based estrogens, they're called isoflavones, and they mostly come from either um, lignans like linseeds, they isolate it from those, or from soya. And the best way to take those is just as a supplement. Um, there's a couple of ones that would be very naturally high, like dong kwai, but you, the, there's a BioNutri do a great one called Dignan Plus. Um, Dr. Vogel, they do a menopause support one. So these will kind of help again. It's like a natural base HRT. They'll just bump up your estrogen levels and they'll help them that way. Okay, I have something that I'm finding hard to uh, pronounce from uh, a listener who got it in early this morning. Um, could you ask Annalise, uh, does she know anything about tretinoin, T-R-E-T-I-N-O-I-N, especially purchasing it in Spain? It's for very deep wrinkles. I googled it and it's some kind of a cream. It seems to be more for yeah. acne. So no, um, it's it's basically a derivative of retinoic acid or retinol, which that's is a very high dose of vitamin. You are a mine of information, girl. That's exactly what came well, up on you me. Know, <laughs> Patricia, I would put anything on my face if it stayed off age. So, oh, you know all those things anyway. So um, yeah, you can actually buy it. Um, like boots have a great range, and a lot of the time the boots stuff actually have good research behind it. Um, and I think there's loads of online ones. The Ordinary Company, um, they do retinoic acid as well. You have to be very careful about it um, that you don't go in the sun. What it does basically is it encourages the cells to divide much quicker than usual. So they, you know, they kind of renew themselves much more frequently. So that's why it helps with fine lines and wrinkles. Make sure you wear a factor cream, even in the winter if you're using it, because you could get pigmentation of the skin when you're using it, and then you'll end up with brown spots, which are worse than wrinkles. And don't you don't have to spend a fortune on them. I like boots have a fantastic range. And as I said, the ordinary company, there's lots of online, you know, beauty websites and they read the reviews and get a good one there. Okay, hi, uh, Patricia. Could you ask Annalise uh, if she could mention the charcoal tablets that she recommended for flatulence, please? What are those tablets? So it's it's activated charcoal, so it literally is charcoal. And you can get it as a powder or you can get the powder put into capsules. There's a couple of different brands. There's one brand called Windaway and there's another brand called Kiki. Um, And there you take them before and after you eat if you want to go somewhere. Now, they're, you know, it doesn't solve the problem. It just gives you that temporary relief um, from wind because the charcoal actually absorbs it absorbs the air in the colon. So it's a bit of a nuisance. You have to take quite a few of them. But it's great if you're worried that you're going out to an event and you're just worried that you might be a little bit musical. So um, you would take it before. A lot of people would take it as well when they go on flights because they find it really helps after the flights. Um, so either of those would work. But if it's a long-term problem, you're probably looking at maybe a digestive enzyme because you're not digesting your food properly or probiotic, and that might actually solve the problem as opposed to just the symptoms. Okay, Mary. Hi, Annalise. Is there a vitamin with vitamin D and magnesium in the one? The reason I ask is I'm taking two separate ones at present. It would be easier to take the one. Yes, there is actually. Prismag do one. Um, The company, it's P-R-I-Z-M-A-G, and they do one with a vitamin D and a magnesium in there. Okay, hi, um, Annalise. Uh, any advice, please, about really loud snoring? I find it very hard to nod off, but I eventually do. I don't want to be constantly waking him up, but sometimes I simply have to. Any ideas, please? This is, a lot of people will identify with this. And you know what? It's worse, as, as worse honestly, as men get older, Patricia. Um, so I'd love, I'd love that there was an answer, but I really don't think that there is. And actually, this is an interesting point as well, Patricia. More and more of my customers are coming in saying that either they or their husbands have been diagnosed with sleep apnea. Now, sleep apnea is where you actually start to stop breathing for a little bit. And um, 
and it can increase your snoring. So but if, if it is at a level where it's quite dangerous because it does increase your risk of heart disease in the long term, they'll give you a machine. But to be honest, I mean, I think if you can't live with the snoring, how are you going to live with the machine? So even if it solves the snoring problem, it's still going to probably be a little bit disruptive to your own sleep. Um, there is something you can do that you could try, and that is to tape his mouth closed at night, which sounds like a form of torture, but actually it really does work. Um, it just retrains people and forces people to breathe through their nose. Um, if the nose is blocked, you could try putting a big kind of dab of Vaseline across the bridge of the nose. That can sometimes keep the airways open and sleep slightly elevated to allow the airways um, flow, if that's the reason of the snoring. And then the last is um, excess weight. That will also increase your risk of snoring. So there's no magic answer, I'm afraid. Just any of those, you could give them a try. No, like Queen Elizabeth, separate bedrooms. Exactly. <laughs> Good night's sleep <laughs> yeah. is worth going. Oh, it Trisha. is indeed. Uh, hi, uh, Trish, question for Annalise, uh, please. What would Anna Re- Annalise recommend for faecal impaction with distended loops? Trying to eat fruit, etc. Everything I eat doesn't seem to be digesting properly. It's been going on now for a number of years. I can feel very sick at times with it. I've actually ended up in A&E. The pain has been so bad. I can hardly stick it. I'm seeing a consultant next month. In the meantime, any tips, please? Yeah. That's extreme constipation. Extreme constipation, Patricia. And I was talking earlier about two types of fibre for um, diverticulitis and diverticulosis. Um, so the soluble fibre is really what you're looking for because that will help to soften the stool. Whereas the harder fibre, like the ones you find in celery and cabbages and the harder to kind of digest fruits and vegetables... That, that can actually contribute to impaction because if, if, the, if the stool isn't moving, it just kind of backs up and blocks up behind and eventually becomes like clay and very hard to move. So what I would normally recommend to my clients here would be that they try and um, they try and, I suppose, unblock themselves really with high strength laxatives and then keep themselves regular by a combination of psyllium husk, soluble fiber in the diet a proper digestive enzyme, a good strong one to help you break your food down properly, um, a good probiotic as well, and possibly a natural laxative, like maybe um, the aloe pura do a nice gentle laxative. Um, And that can sometimes help, Patricia, a lot of the time, sorry, can help, but sometimes it doesn't help if there's something called lazy bowel, where the muscles of the bowel aren't working very well. Um, so you need probably magnesium would be the best if, if that's what the issue is. And then the final thing I would say is that if you're exercising, drinking water and your diet has all the good um, vegetables and fruit in there for fibre and you're still not going, it's probably 90% likely it's a food intolerance. So most people think IBS is diarrhea, but actually most of my customers and clients, it's more constipation. So if you figure out, do a food intolerance test, figure out the foods that are causing your problem and you won't look back. OK, well done. A mine of information, as always. Have a lovely week and we'll chat next Monday. Thanks, Patricia. Thanks. That's Annalise Adrasel of the Health Hub Times Graham Balancolic. And she'll put up as her on the radio this afternoon on her website, healthhubstore.com. That's where we leave you for today. Mark Malone is in for Nick Richards for the next couple of weeks. Thanks to Bernie Murphy for producing. Back with you tomorrow. Cool. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.